which is brought to you by Warranty Wise. Get a quote from them today at warrantywise.co.uk. It's also brought to you by Sorry Mate. Have you had an accident on your bike and it wasn't your fault? Just Google Sorry Mate, you'll get through to them. They're bikers, they know what they're doing and they will get a result for you. And it's brought to you by Minisport, providing parts and services for the classic Isagonis Mini since 1968. My guest today is Rupert Bravery. He's a bike man, he's a car man, he's a journalist, a rallyist, a touring motorcyclist. He once toured Europe on a Kawasaki two-stroke triple. It's, it's crazy. A really good guest. We barely scratched the surface of what he's done, but he's a really good storyteller as well, and that always helps. My guest this week on Speed Shop, Rupert Bravery. There's a, there's a film called... It's a Hammer Horror film. Remember those? Yeah, I do. I'm old enough to remember that, yeah. yeah. Sir Christopher Lee, I interviewed him three times. What a gentleman. What a privilege it was to speak to that man. What a life he had. And like I said, I think, I think he enjoyed being interviewed. I think he enjoyed being interviewed by me. Either that or he was just a good actor. Um, a very good actor. Um, because I was so interested in his life, and, I, and I'd really researched his life. Because I don't know if you know, he was Ian Fleming's cousin. Yeah, he was in that world of that sort of twilight world in the Second World War of military intelligence, kind of the, yeah. the the formation of what we now know as British military intelligence, which MI five, MI six, that sort of thing, was back then generally naval intelligence and, and involved people like Ian Fleming, involved people like Christopher Lee, who had an incredibly exotic background. I think his mother was an Italian countess and he's, he was like Peter Ustinov. He had Russian, German, Italian royalty, all sorts of stuff going on. And I said to him, you should have been James Bond. He could have been James And he just laughed as though it, as though it was the most ridiculous suggestion ever. But and yet, I think James Bond was an amalgam of all those sorts of people. Well, somebody the other day was... I mean, it's a great topic of the day, and, and, and Speed Shop kind of exists a bit like the Faroe Islands, sort of. People have heard of it, but, but not many people have been there. And uh, <laughs> it, it's kind of in extremis. But, but let's address it. It, it, was, it was my daughter, and, and I have a mixed-race family. Uh, parts of my family are... Mixed, um, although I'm, Yorkshire, I'm as yeah, I'm as white as a pint of milk. But, but parts of my family are mixed, and so that that's my that's my world, that's my family. And so we had these conversations, and my daughter said, "James Bond can't be black." I said, "Of course he can be black. Of course he can be black. All that he has to be in my head, having read all the books and seen all the films, is he has to be male and an orphan." He has to be those two things, and he has to have gone to Eton and Fetters. He has to have been privately educated, and he has to be male, and he has to be an orphan. He could be South Asian, he could be black, he could be of Chinese origin. He just has to be those things to make him... Yeah, it's your nature, not your nature. Yeah, because part of the Bond thing is a very... the, The Bond is the sort of killer for hire, which is effectively what he was, is because he's an orphan and he doesn't really... 
he, he, you know, that's in the same way that Bruce Wayne, I'm sure that whoever created Batman sort of nicked, oh, did Batman come before Bond? Batman might have come before, because, of course, you know, Bruce Wayne famously has issues with his, with his, the death of his parents. Yeah, well, How the hell have we got onto this? Well, yeah, but anyway... A Hammer horror movie called The Living Dead at the Manchester Morgue. Now, straight away, you and I are going to have an issue with that title because we don't have morgues in Manchester, England. We have mortuaries. But, yeah. you know, Hammer, like, like a lot of things made in Britain during the 60s, it was intended for export to America. And so, you know, just like a Triumph motorcycle or an MG sports car, you had to make it accessible to Americans, so they called it the Manchester Morgue. And the opening sequence is a guy on a Norton Commando riding around central Manchester, literally where I'm sat right now. He rides past the building that I'm recording and broadcasting from right now. Yeah. And it's one, yeah. the, it's one of the best... It's one of the best opening scenes, oh, purely because, one, I'm from Manchester, and two... The Norton Commando, I have decided, is my favourite motorcycle of all time. Yeah, I think I think it became mine because I, I went I went through the you may be able to tell from my accent I went through the English public school from the age of eight to the age of eighteen. Well, you called Rupert. I didn't think you'd gone to the local comp with a name like that. Well, <laughs> Do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. The well, secondary one. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. Change my name to something else, like Steve. Um, but, but when I was at school, uh, Keith Emerson of ELP, yeah, had a Norton Commando 850, and Keith Emerson was a cool character, and he had a Norton Commando. So you really thought, I need a Norton Commando because really, if I'm going to be cool, that's that's what I I, I need to drive. And, and although people were driving Triumphs, you tended to associate those with police bikes, because I think they had the Saints in those days, didn't they? The, the, the police Bonnevilles. But the Commando was like, you know, the, the, and I think even in, extraordinarily, I think it was Bike of the Year for three years running in Motorcycle News. I think, Rupe, you'll find it was Bike of the Year for five years running in Motorcycle News. Like, yeah. I was reading the three years running. Even in even in the days when the the Honda CB750. Shall I tell you my Keith Emerson story? Go on then. Right. Okay. So I was living in North London between um, between Hampstead and and Dalston. Uh, yeah. Canonbury. It's a it's a little known spot. It has got its own overground station, not a tube station, but an overground station. And I was working at ITN on the Grazing Road. Making a, making an engineering challenge show that was well, we weren't allowed to use the word scrap heap challenge because it was basically a rip off of scrap heap challenge. <laughs> so those words were banned in the office because we we kept saying we kept saying to people on the phone when we were trying to get them to be on it, we kept saying it's like scrap heap challenge but on a grand scale. So they said we can't. A memo went round saying you mustn't say scrap heap challenge yeah. <laughs> because you know we shouldn't really be ripping it off. But anyway, we were and. Um, I had a Ducati at the time. I had a white frame 900 SS, and my partner had her Triumph Thruxton Cafe Racer. And because it was London, we 
we had a garage, but it was kind of right on the other side of town. And so, more often than not, the bikes used to be chained up under covers outside the house. Right? Yep. And I... Across from us was a parade of shops, as we would say up north. There was like a newsagent shop, a laundrette. It was it was very London. It was in that it was very mixed. It was like you know, it was people paying like we were eighteen hundred quid a month rent <laughs> for a two bed flat, and then the people across the street were on benefits, and you know, it was kind of very London. I was trying to explain to an American. London is unusual in that there's not like there are like the good part of town and the the not-so-good part of town. But most of London is incredibly mixed. I remember going to see a very, very famous rock star, and he said to me, he told me where to park, and then he said, you're best parking there, Steve, and then popping through the estate. So I parked my car, popped yep. through the estate, which was pretty grim, and then rang the doorbell of his £9 million London townhouse and thought, that's London all over. <laughs> because, you know, he was looking at his £9 million house at a really quite rough social housing estate. And we were kind of in the same spot. And, and I, I'm not saying that because I mind it. I don't mind it at all. I'd rather live in that sort of mixed environment than be sort of up on Nobel. But anyway, there was a parade of shops, a laundrette, a newsagents, a pub, thank God, Remember, remember pubs, Rupert? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Around here, I still got a lot of pubs. There's a signpost. Mate, you've you've completely disappeared down a rabbit hole. I'm still here. Oh, there you are. Right. Okay. What I'm saying is, around me, I've got a lot of pubs because down the road from me, there's a signpost. I'll send you a photo. There's a signpost on the road which only has on it. It's a road sign. It only has on it pub names. And how many miles they are. Wow. <laughs> that is fantastic. So there was a pub and there yeah. was a shop that was that was kind of all boarded up. It was the window was covered over, it was smartly painted, so you knew that there was something going on in there, but you weren't quite sure what. Anyway, one day I saw the bloke who used that premises trying to manhandle an old pub piano, you know, an upright piano, like yeah, the sort of thing. Yeah. If you went to the, if you ever went to the sing-songs at the Coaching Horses, Norman's Coaching Horses, a Soho institution that's sadly gone, that sort of a piano. Yeah, I know. The one thing used to, I think they used to have a competition at one of the bike shows, uh, one of the rallies, to see which team could smash one up yeah. with a sledgehammer the fastest. Yeah, we did that. We did that at Top Gear Live. Post the bits through a letterbox. Yeah, we did that at Top Gear Live at yeah. Silverstone at the very first one. Hold on, first mention of Top Gear. How far are we in? Eleven minutes. Right. Okay. I usually last about twenty before we mention TG, but anyway, they split us into two teams, and we had to. What did we have to take apart? Was it a Metro? I think it was a Metro, and they gave us various sort of. It was extraordinarily dodgy. Uh, I can't imagine that there'd been any sort of health and safety on this because no. they just gave us these sort of sledgehammers. As, and Quentin was, Quentin Wilson, old 2Ls Wilson, my, my old chum, was incredibly sort of gung-ho because uh, I was swinging this sledgehammer about <laughs> and Quentin was going, go on, Steve, give it a good whack. <laughs> like this sort of thing. Cracking away, it? it was anyway. Um, 
this bloke was trying to get one of those pianos into his business, into his premises, but it was on a trolley, and he was struggling a bit up the pavement. So I went over and helped him. And he said, oh, thanks. He said, oh, yeah, I've seen your bikes outside. And he said, you want to come, you want to come in someday and, and see the bike that I've got in the back? And I went, I just went. He, he was just a, an older guy, maybe, so, you know, in his mid-60s, whatever. And I said, yeah, yeah, what, yeah, that'd be nice, you know. So a few days later, I'm outside my place on chaining my bike up because um, I'd come on for whatever reason. And the guy said to me, have you got two minutes to have a look at that bike? And I said, yeah, of course I have, because he's a friendly guy, you know, <laughs> common civility. So I follow him across the road. We go into this premises, which is full of keyboards. It's full of organs and pianos and all sorts of stuff. We go through the back, and there it is. Keith, Keith Emerson's Dunstall Kawasaki, the fastest street bike in Britain. I said to him... I remember that bike, that exact bike, being on the front cover of Superbike magazine, and the, underneath it said, Britain's fastest street bike. That's Keith Emerson's Dunstall Kawasaki. And he just was killing himself laughing. <laughs> and he said, he said, you don't really need to be Inspector Morris. When you're surrounded by keyboards and there's a Dunstall Kawasaki, you just think, I wonder if that's Keith Emerson's. And it was. And he said, it's been here for years. I just, He just said one day to me, you know, he obviously knew the guy. He said to me, oh, could you, uh, could you kind of put my motorbike in your place? And he said, it's just been there for... It's probably still there. Bloody hell, you should have offered him a... I was it wasn't his to sell, was it? No, he was, just, he was just doing that thing that a lot of us end up doing, storing a bike for a mate, and then somebody mentions it to you, and they say, oh, is that yours? And you go, no, no, no. And then you realise how long it's been there, and you go... It's been there for eight years now. <laughs> so you call the guy up and you go, um, are you are you going to come for this bike? And, and, and they never, ever realise how long it's been with you. They go, why, how long have you had it? And you go, eight years. They go, no, no. And you go, yes, it's been here for eight years. No. <laughs> yeah, bikes... no I, I've, I did that with a, with a 1930s Bentley uh, I had where I lent it to the music when I was living in Paddy with me in Belgium. I lent it to the because um, a friend of mine in Belgium, a Belgian friend, wanted to use it for his wedding, so I didn't bring it back to England. I lent it to him, and then he put it into the museum in Luxembourg, and it sat there for a long period because I then I had a job where I was forever abroad, and it was only I gave it to my son not so long ago, and then when Brexit was coming, number two son who got the Bentley's going, uh, I think we need to get a Bentley out of Luxembourg before. Uh, for Brexit, so we um, we had a boys' weekend away with a Land Rover and a long trailer, and went to get the Bentley to find the museum owner didn't really want to let it go, so we had to do a bit of negotiation in Luxembourg with a ferry to catch to get the Bentley out of the country. There's always but you that forget th- how long you've been there. You forget how long this stuff's been yeah. there. There's always that. Not always, but there's often that difficult thing. The number of times I've been told a story where someone's passed away. No, I'm not indicating that either of us two might be at death's door, but, you know, there's you hear stories, don't you? Someone's passed away and his family go to the museum where yeah. where Dad's, you know, priceless Honda, Bugatti, Ducati, Harley-Davidson, Wartburg, whatever the hell it is, car, bike, whatever mm-hmm. it is, and they say, oh, yeah, uh, Dad passed away. Could we have the... Uh, could we have the machine that was on loan to you back? Yeah. And they go, 
Oh no 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 no! It, it, it wasn't. Was a gift. Yeah. It wasn't a loan. It was a. It was a gift. It was a donation. And then then you read about it in the classic press, and it says, "Who are over three point two million pound, whatever it is," and you just think, if you ever do that, you can't really do it on a nod and a wink. No, you got to you got to put it in writing. But luckily, I had enough witnesses. In fact, the guy who had organised the loan of it, uh, who was a Belgium, had actually moved to Luxembourg. So I just rang him up. And um, it was settled. It's often it's a question of who you know, isn't it? Helps. But yeah, it was quite. So we had, yeah, we had a fun. So the Bentley's now back in England, and number two son has got it, so he's very happy. What um, is it? Tell us, tell us about the car. It's a, it's a, it was the Thrupper Maberly Show Car for the 1934 Motor Show in London, the London Motor Show, and at the time it had a very Art Deco airflow body on it that somebody removed at some point. So only north of the scuttle, bonnet, everything else north is the original Art Deco body. And then the other bit's an open tourer. Mm. And my uncle bought it in a terrible state. I remember he bought, he paid £15,000 for it years and years ago because uh, he had his own body shop and stuff. He was going what's to do the, it up. What's the motor, Rupert? It's a six-cylinder, three-and-a-half-litre. Right. Um assisted brakes. I mean, you know, this, it's quite sophisticated for its time. Mm. And I remember when he first bought it, I took it out for a ride, and it needed work doing it, quite a bit of work doing on it. And I remember going down a hill with, with my son in the car, who was only a small child at the time, coming to a crossroads, putting my foot in the brakes, and then shooting straight across the road. <laughs> I did that in a cord, in, yeah. a, in a, a cord roadster. Uh, yeah, I know the ones. Once, uh, Dr. Jason Love had one, didn't he? Just sa- I just course. sailed straight through a red light. It was like, because I saw the thing on the dash of the cord that said, this EL cord authorises and certifies that this automobile will exceed 100 miles per hour, blah, blah, blah. And I thought, oh, right, okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so we yeah, got going at a, a fair old lick, and I thought, oh, it fairly shifts this thing. Oh, I better slow down because that light's probably going to change to red. Sailed straight through it in this giant Art Deco car. Thankfully, right. didn't it didn't hit anything. But, um, yeah, there was... there was well, a- luckily, because my, my grandfather, had a, uh, sorry, my uncle, had a, a, a full... He had a, a two factories, two workshops, so he restored it. I mean, it, it got the full works. Um, so what business was he in? Was, was he in the engineering world? Yeah, he had a body shop and a car workshop, so... He would. He was doing the painting and the bodywork uh, for vehicles, and he was also repairing vehicles as well. So he had two two factories doing that. So he he used a lot of his time on the Bentley. And then uh, when he was coming up for retirement, and I think he bought two houses and he was a bit short of cash. So I ended up buying the Bentley from him because he'd asked, offered it to some dealers. And he put all that work in, and he and I'd rallied it. That was the point. Is we went <laughs> doing competitive rallies in it, and we, um, in fact, the, the first time out in the car up against 1960 sports cars and such in uh, in France, we came second. <laughs> uh, and the next year we won it. Nobody in the had ever won the rally before. In a 30-year-old Bentley special. In the 1930s, it was like, you know, whatever age it was at that point. Yeah, 30-year-old. Well, if you were in the 60s and it was in the... It no, was... no, no, this was, no, this was, this, this was back in the 90s, I think. Oh, wow. So it, was, so it was 60 years so, old. <laughs> yeah, then we were up against 1960s cars from the 1960s. 
So we were up against, you know, uh, TR3As and... Some beam tigers, yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. And, and we were in this Bentley, but because of my my uh, intellectual prowess with maps and timing sheets and uh, stopwatches and mental calculations, um, I, I remained... The bit was to remain accurate, because I don't know if you've ever done rallying, but it's I time, yeah. all the time you're on the road. It's when you go wrong. And it's like on the Monte Carlo. You don't want to be wrong at 3 o'clock in the morning on a snowy mountain and you're 20 miles out and you've got 20 minutes to do it. So I'm always quite, you know, uh, I learned early on it's directions first, speed second. Otherwise, uh, it's just a nightmare. I've just, signed, I've just signed on for an event on the 6th of June, navigating yeah. for a pal who is going to be, and we're going to be in a Derby Bentley. We're going to be in his Derby Bentley. He's got a W.O. He's got a Cricklewood built uh, Bentley. Yeah. But he's also got his Derby. And, of course, the W.O. Bentleys are legendary and the exploits yeah. of the Benjavilles Racing Club um, with the recent double twelve thing that they did last year, and, and all of their efforts, I, I can't imagine that there's another mark um, in motoring that's as enthusiastically raced and rallied as as those nineteen twenties Bentleys. I mean, I've told well, all, I've, all I've all told the story, but hold on a sec. The point I was going to make was, oh, sorry. but if you have both like he does, and you actually get a c- couple of drinks inside the guy. You can prize it out of him that the Derby Bentley's nicer to drive. It is, yeah, because you've got you've got servo-assisted brakes, you've got help with your steering, uh, you've got synchro mesh on most gears. Uh, only between first and second, don't you have synchro mesh? That that uh, gear change on nineteen twenties Bentleys is the most frustrating feature of any car. I I I tried to palamine. I was going to passenger with him round Silverstone at the last Bentley Drivers Club event there. And at the last minute, he said to me, Steve, why don't you drive? And I thought, well, I'm not going to, you know, his car's very special. And I thought, and it it is a W.R. And I thought, I'm not going to knock that back. So we we swapped over. And as we went out onto the circuit, I got the first gear change absolutely spot on. And there was a kind of a slight smile of recognition that, you know, something that's considered to be very tricky. That was the only one I got right. After two laps, he, he was begging me to just leave it in third. He was like, Steve, just leave it in third. <laughs> like this. Well, because I, no matter what I did, I understand the principle of double D clutching. I understand a non-synchromesh gearbox. And this car, there's, there's no excuses. This car was in perfect condition i mean the man is meticulous his cars are perfect it was just me i could not get my head around <laughs> well, well the trick in the derby is just to pull away in second gear i went up i i went four up up the test hill at brooklands from a standing start in second gear so you don't really need first gear and then i i remember a couple of years back octane rang me up and said could you could you do this? Could you fly down to Geneva, meet a German called Hero? It appealed to me. There's somebody called Bravery and somebody called Hero. <laughs> in the same car. And they said, "Can you go and do the Rally Days Alp in the Bugatti that won it in 1935 and do a story for us?" Wow! And I went down. How there. quickly did you say yes? <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, it was at least a, a nanosecond uh, of, de- of debate, internal debate there. <laughs> but I was ex- I was expecting to find this. This, a lot of the Germans who do rallies are the guys who've been in the big companies, you know, like Bassett, and they're all doctor, doctor, and 
they come out with their handlebar moustaches and they drive the Mercedes they remember their father driving around in, in the 50s. So I was, I was looking for an umph for, um, for guy. <laughs> um, I'm glad you said and, that, not me. <laughs> and and the, I ran into this guy, big, big guy, like six foot six with blonde ponytail. And he turned out to be a heavy metal rock promoter hmm. called Hero Alting. And he'd found this Bugatti, this 34 Bugatti, in road-going trim. And he started to restore it. But when they took the body off, they found some numbers on it. And so they checked on the numbers and found out it was a works racing car wow. from 1935. So he put the race, it was a Type 57. And he put the bodywork back on it. And um, I think Octane magazine persuaded the rally days out to let this car in. And then they needed some hapless fool to... to sit in the in the co-driver's seat and um, produce a story but but the interesting thing was is that the guy the driver said let's have a you know you can have a go on it so on some of the sections i actually drove the car and you hear all this stuff from mr bugatti about oh yeah mr bentley made very good lorries and uh, but mine are proper cars well we're going down this mountain road and the guy said well, you need to check the brakes first he said and it had self uh um, uh, leveling brakes, so to speak. So, you, you know, you'd always meant to brake in a straight line. Well, I slammed on the anchors and we shot off to the left and nearly smashed into the side of the mountain. I said, <laughs> it's pulling to the left a bit. He said, <laughs> and then it had no synchromesh between first, second or third. So when you're coming in, like you're doing the old and Gotthard Pass and others, and they're really tight and you've got parve on the road, the only way to get around in these 30s cars is to go in at a degree of speed swing the wheel, stamp on the anchors to get the back end sliding. And in bro I was in brokes because I only thought I was going to be navigating. Trying to heel and toe in, in English brokes, uh, sliding on a mountain and um, trying to find the bloody right gear. And then you finally get to, to first. And as you put the power down, of course, the, the wheels were ripping up the parve. And we had all the big 20s Bentleys ahead of us. So all I could hear was Parve banging up Mate. the underside of this car that had cost him half a million. In euros. the entire history of the yeah. since the invention of the expression first world problems <laughs> yeah. failing to heel and toe in your handmade churches or Cheneys because yeah. you didn't expect to be driving a works Bugatti. That has got to be... In fact, if you look up first world problems now in a dictionary, that's what it'll say. Failing to yeah. heel and toe in your handmade English shoes in a, in a works Bugatti because you weren't expecting to drive, you were only expecting to navigate. I hate, exactly. nav I hate navigating. Mates of mine who've got interesting cars are always asking me to do it. And I always go along thinking I'll get a drive because um, it, it's kind of... It's almost... The, the the driver navigator relationship, it's a bit like a bad marriage, isn't it? Well, it's you kind have to of... tell him to shut up the whole time because <laughs> you, you, they they don't have any understanding of time. So you, either when you're running late, you keep saying. I remember with one guy in his Elvis on the Monte Carlo, just going, "Come on, faster, faster!" And then he's complaining, saying, "I'm going as fast as I can," and I'm going, "Well, you obviously aren't because we're behind time." Um, and, uh, yeah, it's... Uh, and the other one is, if you stop at a junction, so you come to a junction, you just need to make sure, like, on the Monte Carlo and on the jog, you do the first 36 hours of no sleep, and you're doing navigating the whole time. So intellectually challenging, and 
wearing mentally. Mm. And you and you all we always say it's direction first, speed second. And you come to a junction, you think I just I just need to check, make sure this is the right junction, I'm going the right way. And you say, just hang on a minute. And the driver's in your ear going, come on, I'll go left, right, left, right, left, right. What do I do? Left, right, left. And you're going, shut up. I'm just, for the driver, and you only spend five to ten seconds just checking. For the driver, this appears to be about five minutes. Yeah. And you're going, no, it's actually five seconds. Um, and you have to be quite tough with them sometimes. I, I did a rally with a guy called David Cook, who's an ex-England rugby international, great mate of mine, and formerly captain of Harlequins. And he wanted me to co-drive him because he wanted to win a rally. He said, well, I can run a rally with you. Um, I said, uh, I, you know, uh, I'm very flattered that you think I've got this ability. Um, and we were doing a rally in France. And on the fifth day, we were lying second uh, at the start of the day. But then the guy in charge, or sorry, the guy in lead, got it completely wrong in one of the sections. And ended up coming to the timing point with smoke and everything coming out of the car. And he'd, he'd lost his play. He was now like 10th because he, he'd gone wrong and then had to charge back through the countryside. So he'd half wrecked his car and he was way off time. At this point, we're now in the lead and I know we're in the lead and Cookie knows we're in the lead. And I thought, well, here's a man who's played rugby at international level. He can deal with stress of, on the pitch. And, and he became a nightmare as a driver because he got nervous. And whenever I told him to go right, he'd go left. And whenever I told him to go left, he'd go right. So I ended up just going, my side, your side. <laughs> and, and David, you can't bite your fingernails and drive at the same time, mate. Just keep going. Um, we were doing an event in, in France, and um, my my good friend and the well-known um, former British touring car and, and now prominent historic racer, Anthony Reid, and I were, yeah. were um, paired on this, a man with it with a, Anthony's not just a great driver. He, he's also got the driest, the very driest sense of humour of anyone that I know. He's an yeah. incredibly funny guy to be around. Um, no, he doesn't tell jokes, but he's he's just got he's just got a turn of phrase. <laughs> he's just incredibly. No, I, I was I was, I I know him from covering the Spa Six Hours Classic for. Octane on one or classic one of the magazines I covered. So yes, I've met him racing. He's a really lovely guy. He is. He's a sweetheart. And a but he like, excellent driver. Yeah, and he loves to party, which is great because so do I. So we um, we're in France and we'd he'd parted considerably harder than I had. I mean, I had woken up in the clothes that I was wearing the night before. Having yeah. not having made it to the bed, but not into it. One of those nights where you make it to the bed but you don't actually get in it. You're kind of on it. And I'd gone downstairs and, and, and doctored myself with endless cups of black coffee and ham and cheese rolls because we're in France. And Anthony appeared. And let me see. How far past the start time was it? I think, oh, no, not another. Four and a half hours. Yeah. Right? And, and still wearing what he was wearing the night before. <laughs> and... Uh, and he said, I'm terribly sorry, um, <laughs> but, but I appear to have overslept. And I said, right, okay. And we drove straight to the, we drove straight to the finish line. 
because I yeah. thought there's absolutely no point trying to do the event because, you know, it crisscrossed the French countryside for many, many miles with various checkpoints and, you know, time times that you had to be there. It was it was a regularity trial. You had to be at a certain place at a certain yeah, time. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. But it was a it was lot big distances. It was a full day of driving. And all we did was just drive straight to the finish line. But when we got there because it was rural France, there was a band. There was like a... With lots of symbols. There was a band. There was... The mayor was there with his mayoral stuff on. There was local television. So we roll up in this jag, which is all logoed and got numbers on and it's got our names down the side of it, all this sort of stuff. And the mayor's kissing Anthony and they put, a girl puts a garland of flowers around his neck. And local TV are trying to interview me and I'm... And at first I thought, we must tell them that yeah. we're not involved in the event and that we've just driven straight here. And I, I, I went over to Anthony, and then I realised what a terrible idea that would be. <laughs> and, and so I went over to Anthony and I said, just go with the floor. And he said, yeah. some, and he said something like, of course, dear boy, like this, as he was being given drinks and there was like a bottle yep. of champagne to shake and all this sort of stuff. Because you, you, we're British, you don't want to disappoint everyone, do you? You want to, you, you know. You don't, you don't. But, uh, you just reminded me, I have a confession to make about the Rally, which uh, I was doing a few years ago in a Triumph TR3A with a, a, a guy I knew. What was that? Uh, we, I think we missed that bit at the start. What rally was it? The Monte Carlo. The Monte Carlo. Oh, right, the, the Monte Carlo. Carlo. All right, okay, go on then. The Monte, the Monte Challenge, they call it. Anyway, uh, he was a wonderful guy, but I remember on the way down, there was somebody broken down and we helped them. And uh, as I got back in the car, he said, of course, he said, uh, he said, if we break down, we're completely buggered. I said, what do you mean we're completely buggered? He said, what? I said, you miss your car. I said, no, no, no. He said, if, if God had meant me to be a mechanic, he wouldn't have made me an estate agent. Um, <laughs> That's the funniest estate agent joke I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, we did. We so we 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 were doing well. I mean, on the the, the last the last leg. So as we were getting towards uh, Monaco on the last day. So yeah, we've done four days. And this is one of these ones where you do a thirty-six hour stint, and people come from all over Europe and descend on Aix-les-Bains. Yeah. And then after two days, we go on from Aix-les-Bains uh, on the same route. Well. Because he kept using the gears too much to slow down and up the mountain, he started ripping teeth off the back of the drive. Mm. And you got to this point where it was just making so much noise. And, of course, it wasn't my car. So he said, what should we do? And I said, well, it was my car. I said, well, we keep going. It's always cheaper to drive somebody else's car. Um, so we keep going. And, and eventually, at about 5 o'clock in the morning, up in the Alp Maritime, above the uh, Mediterranean, the teeth all finally, the last tooth, stripped off. And he said, what do I do? I said, well, we're going downwards. Just keep coasting. Coast until we can coast no more. And we found a little cafe that was just opening up at six o'clock in the morning and stopped there. We took and put the sign out to say we were broken down. And we were lying in third position at the time. And you can imagine how it felt with every car driving past you. Um, but what we do is we rang up the RAC and said, look, we're on a touring holiday. <laughs> <laughs> You swines. <laughs> and we ripped all the rally decals off the car and shoved them in the boot. And we rubbed over all the clean bits of car with a, you know, rubbed all the mud in to make it look. A, a guy eventually turns up um, to pick the car up. 
and take us back to some garage. Did it not have, like, nowhere. racing numbers on the side and your name written on it? And, like, I yeah, don't... No, we, we ripped all that off and just covered it in mud. So, yeah. look, kosher. Um, and, then, and then they said, well, we, RAC said, we've also got a, uh, we've got a taxi for you. So we said to the, the mechanic in the oily rags, well, where's our taxi? Like, in the middle of nowhere, he said, five minutes. So to the same bloke turns up, now in clean jeans and a leather jacket. Yeah. And he's our taxi driver as well as our... Takes us down to a car hire place in Nice. We pick a hire car up and we drive to the finish in a hire car. Well, I then present... I can get to the finish and present my papers, all the papers. And the, the guys go, where's your car? I said, it's broken down just up the road. They said, well, why didn't you push it in? I said, oh, give us a break. We've been five days, we're knacking. We've been up half the night. He said, yeah, I understand. Stamps our papers. We came 20th. <laughs> <laughs> and, and my driver, is, he's never done the multi for. He said, he said, Rupert, I think you're cheating. This is not good. I said, I said James, go, go and have a drink with the others. Just shut up. Said, yeah. I'll, I'll sort this out. And he kept saying, you're cheating, you're cheating. And I said, no, I haven't, because I've read the rules. And I said, the rules state that to be considered a finisher, the driver and the co-driver have to be at the start at Brooklands. The driver and the co-driver have to be at Aixley Band, the midpoint. And the driver and the co-driver have to be at the finish in Monte Carlo. I said, we've, we've yes. obeyed the rules. There's nothing in the rules that says we have to have a car with us. I'm trying because to think. Happy. I'm trying to think of the motorbike racer. I think it's Leon Haslam, son of Ron, and a, and a very decent racer in his own right, who crossed the finish line, and I think it was British Superbikes, minus his bike. He parted company with his bike, but he crossed the finishing He slid across the finishing line. And there was a big debate as to whether... What what position he'd finished in? Because I think it was Leon Haslam. It may have been someone else. But it's they don't really think in the rules that that yeah. a motorcycle racer is going to cross the finish line without their motorcycle. Because the well, the, the start finish line is the driver of pop. Yeah, yeah, flying off. The bikes whizzed across. He's whizzed across. It doesn't seem they don't need to be attached to each other, do they? So um, how did you how did you get back from? Uh, did you just drive the hire car all the way back, or...? No, no, I was going on to a job in Egypt, so I took a taxi to Nice. I went straight from the Monte Carlo rally to Cairo. Wow. my rally gear um, and some khaki trousers to make it look like I was... You know what I was talking about when I arrived in Egypt. <laughs> what kind of cars w- were knocking about in Egypt at that time? Was it... Was it, well, it because... Wasn't, it wasn't that long ago. Well, mostly... Uh, I suppose that the the most in the early days of going to Egypt, I think the most common mark was ferrous oxide. <laughs> was um, it not all Peugeot four or fives and Mercedes W one two threes? Yeah, the old Nairobi taxis—they were very popular in Morocco and Kenya and places. Uh, I think by this time, the, the the Africa Africa was waking up to the fact that you could buy a Toyota when you press the start button. It started. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, the Japanese had made great inroads in because the Europeans tended to send cars to Africa that would fall to bits or not start in the morning. Mm. And and these guys, of course, it's there. Well, particularly in Egypt, it's very interesting that with the uncertainties in the currency there, cars are very much seen as an investment. So people will buy a car as much as an investment as a mode of transport. It's very interesting how they view cars. 
and they will change their oil every 3,000 miles. Well, I... So I was... I was in those days... Really? I was doing, what? Why would they do that? Well, because they believe that, you know, you've got a lot of dust and sand, you get the sandstorms coming in. They just believe that you need to change the oil. Right. And I was, I was at that time, responsible for sales of engine oil through, you know, garages and service stations. And uh, we were running oil changing uh, units, you know, um, building oil changes 24-7. It was almost seemed like a, a social thing. I'd, I could go to a, one of our oil change uh, operations at 2 o'clock in the morning, and there'd be young couple, like young couples here going to the cinema, they're, they'd be going to change their oil. Wow. <laughs> Look, there can't be that much to do in Egypt in, in going to the oil ch- Well, isn't it funny? Because in the States, of course, they have Jiffy Lube and stuff like that, yeah. where people... In America, they separated out the jobs that can yes. be done to a car or on a car a lot earlier than we did in the UK. I think for, for a long time in the UK, you just went to your, your man, to your garage, didn't you? To Or like my father, you did, or my grandfather, you did it yourself at home because, he, and, and it's very easy for men of our age to, to fall into that, oh, yeah, these kids, they, they, they wouldn't know what to do. They wouldn't know what a spark plug was if you, if you, you, know, if you yep. threw it at them. And it's kind of one of the reasons that younger people don't know as much about car mechanics and motorcycle mechanics as we do is because cars and motorbikes have become much, much more reliable than they used to well, be. <laughs> yeah, and I've got, I've got a couple of mates, um, Neil Twyman and uh, Dean Lanzanti, who rebuild old racing cars, and, and they've got a lot of high-end clients. They've, you know, they're, 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 they're repairing and, and keeping running Formula One cars, 1930s racing cars, and, and they're saying the difficult bit for them is to find people to work for them who can fabricate a new bit of body by hand or, or can make something because... These days on cars, if something breaks down, you just replace it. Mm. It's all about replacement of parts, not building parts or, or fabricating. They are there, mate, those guys. I, yeah, I, but they're, I, they're hard to... They're all saying they're hard... It's hard to find guys coming in as an apprentice to do it. I... Um, I, I, I I think as long as one one of the one of the uh, the good things about the the high price of classics is that there's the money to pay people to do the work. As yeah. long as as long as the value of classics keeps going up, there will be people to to do the work yeah, that's there will required. Be, yes, and, but but they're all saying to me they could have more people who could do. Well, the thing is, I gave my lad, who I gave a Bentley to, he's 27. And I don't think there's many 27-year-olds with a 1930s Bentley, but he's learning to do it all himself. Because mm. he's mechanically minded. And I think one of the things we ought to do as, as parents, if you're into this thing, is you need to pass some stuff onto your kids early on, A, to get them interested, and B, to get them uh, to build their skills in this area. Because they're going to get the car or the bike at some time, aren't they? I don't know if they are. I, 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 it would be, I should really be a cheerleader, you know, sitting in this chair. I should be saying, oh, yeah, the, these kids, they're all going to, they're going to be just like us and they're going to, I mean, I'll tell this story. I, I've said it a few times. A pal of mine has got a barn full of old forwards, right? Right. And it, we'll sometimes sit there and have a beer. And I'm not saying where he is. He's in the UK. That's as specific as I'm going to get. He's got yeah. a barn full of old forwards, which right now, 
are worth a ton of money. More money than he could ever have imagined when he was accumulating them, because he yeah. was just someone like our age who, who grew up sort of sliding Mark II escorts around country roads and, you know, watching the professionals and going out and getting himself a Capri and then getting his mates to film him on a VHS video camera jumping across the hood or the, the bonnet or whatever you want to call it, like the professionals. You know, he's just a guy who bought the cars because he loved the cars and then he's seen them go up and up and up in value. And every time I see him, I said to him, sell those cars right now because there's a generation coming along who couldn't care less about them. I, I think that the super high-end, big-name cars, the 60s Ferraris, the Aston oh, yeah. Martin DB5s, the low-drag E-types or, or lightweight E-types of this world, whatever, they're always going to be valuable. They're always going to be prized. But yep. stuff that was kind of blue-collar cars for guys who started to drive in the late 70s, early 80s, there's a real passion for them at the moment, and the prices are crazy. But the next generation... They're not going to because they haven't got the memory. They weren't there on no, that, no. on that, on that watching the professionals back in 1983, and then going out with your and mate. Sweeney. Yeah, yeah. One, in, one in a Capri and one in a getting a lot of cardboard boxes and piling them up and filming yourself driving and through driving them. Driving a jag through them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's always jags that got smashed up on this. I think it was because. Um, yeah, well, I think a lot of those TV series back in the day. Um, British ones had a deal either with British Leyland or Ford and so they'd use in the same way that there was a time when whenever you saw a car in a TV commercial in the UK and something bad happening to it it was always a Rover because Rover had gone so if you showed a car breaking down and, and the TV commercial said broke down again it was always an old Rover with smoke pouring out from underneath the bonnet because you couldn't offend Rover because they didn't exist anymore so you, it was always a Rover and in those old TV shows it always seemed to be like you said an old S-type Jag or something like that being, yeah. being which, which everybody would treasure now but they were running them off cliffs it was nice to have those those cars exploded halfway down the cliff before they hit anything as well. Um, <laughs> I've crashed loads of cars and none of them have ever exploded. I'm very glad. Well, I'm very glad that... I mean, I crashed a Lotus that with a completely brimful tank of, of fuel and even that didn't explode or set on fire. It wasn't good what happened. I mean, it was pretty horrific, to be honest, but... Um, and I learned what happens. I don't know why we've got onto this, and it's fairly horrible. But I learned what happens when you get doused from head to toe in petrol. Well, which remember is... I work in the oil industry, so yeah, um, it's not it's not a good story. That is. Well, even I was I was trying to explain to my son. I was saying, even though because he said, you know, you were so lucky you didn't get burnt, and I said, well, you kind of do. You get a chemical burn. I mean, you'd know yeah, this. You, do, yeah. you get a chemical burn because if you're doused in petrol. It evaporates, and the eva the process of evaporation is horribly painful. <laughs> it's like you know, it's like I was going to say, just dab a bit on the back of your hand. It's not great. So imagine no, gallons of it. You know, in, I, in all the places you don't need a rash as well. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I was very well, lucky. I, um, well, I, you talk about that. I rolled my M so the first car I bought was a 1974 MGB GT, and coming home one night. Uh, from doing nights, uh, I've been supervising the discharge of a, 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 a ship, a tanker, 
and get, I was on my way to a party. It's like one o'clock in the morning. Someone invited me to a party in Brighton. So I'm winging my way from work, going over the downs, so the, a back wheel went. And the car went over. I rolled it twice and knocked myself out. And I remember coming around and smelling petrol. And because I was in the industry, I, I turned off the engine and, uh, and I could hear some woman screaming, he's dead, he's dead, he's dead. Good grief. Because, <laughs> I thought, I'll try and get out of the car. And I couldn't understand why I couldn't get out of the car because I couldn't open my door. And then I realized I was on my side. So I opened the door up. The passenger, they couldn't get to me because the passenger was locked. So I locked it, opened it up, stuck my head out, and I think I expleted a few deletives. And um, this woman shut up, and the ambulance turned up and everybody else, and I said, get, get the car on its feet because I don't want this catching fire. Um, but the car, I was, the speed I was going, the car went over twice, but the bonnet and the roof and the tailgate never touched the ground. So it was only the wings. I actually rebuilt the car. The chassis wow. remained The tough old cars, the chassis remained straight. Just put new wings front and rear. But the rest of the car was untouched. And it had gone over twice because you could see the scars up the embankment. And then the coppers, the ambulance turned up and uh, they checked me over. I just ostrich egg on the side of my head where I'd bang my head and knock myself out. And then the, the coppers said, well, you know, have you been drinking? It was one o'clock on a Sunday morning. And I said, I've had a drink for hours. I'll come back off shift. We're discharging a ship. And they said, well, you've got to realize that this time of day we've got to yeah. breathalyze you. But they were really nice. They said, let's get in the ambulance so I don't embarrass you with vehicles going past. And they breathalyzed me and they said, you're fine. And they said, okay, shall we take to the hospital? I said, no, I'm fine. I'm meant to be going to a party. <laughs> you so didn't go to the party, the coppers, did you? The coppers going, well, um, really? And I said, yeah. So they said, well, do you want us to give you a lift to the party? I said, yes, please. So the coppers gave me a lift to the party. All the way there, they were asking me questions like, what's your date of birth? How old are you? you know, how many figures were I holding up? I said, oh, I'll be fine. And so I rock up to this party in Brighton in a police car. <laughs> and as, as the police car draws up and I step out, half the party goes are now climbing over the back fence because they think it's a raid. Right, so I'm. So, how old were you then, Rupert? How old were you then? I'm certainly old enough to know better. I was oh, right. 20, 25 or so, I suppose. Well, I must have been about a little bit younger than that. And I had. It was a Friday night. I was on a double blind day with a pal of mine and two girls. Yeah, and we were going to. We were going out in Warrington, which is a maybe sort of. 25 miles away and I'd been out on my bike and I was coming home but for some reason instead of wearing bike gear I was wearing the sort of going out duds that I was you know I was wearing sort of a it was it was what would this have been this would have been the late 80s mid to late 80s so I was wearing like a sort of Paul Smith peg pants and a a next yeah. a next jumper. Back when there was hardly any next stores in the UK, and it was it was quite swish to wear something from next. I was wearing a jumper, peg pants, slip on Italian shoes. Greg slip on shoes. I wasn't wearing bike gear, and so inevitably I came off. I ate an oil can that was lying in the middle of the road. I went around a big left hander. There's a five yeah. liter oil can lying in the middle of the road, and and I tried to adjust my line because I was fairly committed, but it wedged underneath the foot peg oh, and lifted yeah. the front wheel off lifted the yeah. front wheel off the ground 
And so instead of carrying on on this left-hander, I just hit the curb. I, I bailed out before it hit the curb. And I just got ripped to shreds. You know, it's like yeah. it's like like in a Looney Tunes cartoon when there's an explosion and then their claws are all in tatters. I was like that. My claws were just in tatters because I was totally inappropriately dressed for motorcycling. So I went home and called my friend and said, "Listen, I'm not going to make it." And he said, "Don't you let me down? Don't you?" <laughs> he said, "He said I've seen, I've seen these girls. If you don't come, you're going to." Re-. He said, "They're absolutely." You know, he said, you don't let me down. So I thought, right, okay. So I got un- I got undressed and I was a mess. You know, like bits of asphalt yeah. embedded and, and, and coke can pull rings in, embedded in my forearm, pulling them out, that sort of thing. So I kind of cleaned myself up as best I can and then got dressed and was just about to leave the house, get in the car and drive to meet him and then go on to meet them. Um... And I just caught myself in it. I had like a full-length mirror um, by the yep. door. I just caught myself in it, and blood had started to come through the <laughs> through the clothes. So the pants and the and the shirt were both bloodstained. So what did I do? Did I abandon my trip? What no. do you think? No, I went upstairs and changed it to a black shirt and black pants. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we, we went out. I self-medicated with, I think, Stella Artois. And after about sort of four or five of them, I was feeling fairly okay. So we get back to his place. It's all going swimmingly. He's gone off upstairs with... It's blind day, and I'm downstairs on the sofa with mine. And it starts to get a little bit interesting. And I go, all of a sudden, I go, oh, like that. And she went, oh, sorry, what's the, what's the problem? And I said, well, I had a bit of a motorbike accident. When? Mm, about three hours ago. <laughs> you know, three or four hours ago. Oh, right, were you hurt? Well, y- yeah, actually, uh, quite a bit. Oh, OK. Um, well, take your shirt off. At which point I realised that I can, I can undo the cuffs and, like, the top button... But that's about as far as I can get because it's just glued to me with blood, (laughs) as are the trousers. So she said, oh, we can't have this. Hold on a minute. My friend's a nurse. And so she goes (laughs) off upstairs, gets her to come downstairs, and she's like, you need to go straight to hospital because they had where they cut, they literally cut the clothes off me. And then, you know, this is going to hurt. But here's the thing. That was 30 years ago, and the guy that I was with that night who I'm still in contact with, still moans about it. <laughs> he's like, he's like, it was the worst possible time. He said, I'm just about to get going. And, and your date appears and said, you need to come downstairs right now and see that. Well, look at this guy. Yeah, but you see, in those days, we thought we were invincible, didn't we? We were invincible. I, we're still I, here. I remember going down on, on a Velocet 500 Venom, right? Oh, that's a yeah. bike and a half, isn't it? Yeah. And uh, still in the family. And anyway, I was going down with a mate, and we'd been down to the West Country. We were coming back to Sussex. And early morning, coming up a hill on a left-hander, as I tank into the left-hander, there's a, some idiot has parked his car on a blind bend. And I just grabbed the front anchor too much. And I thought, uh-oh. And I could feel the front wheel going. And I, I thought, can I hold it up? Can I hold it up? And I thought, no. And I also remember at the time thinking, Get your leg out. Get your leg out. So I, li- I got. My- I went down sideways. I got the leg out. So I get trapped in the bike. The bike then disappeared off up the road. I- my mate on a commando behind me nearly ran me over. And I I'd hit the road about sixty and bounced a few times. 
came came to a halt just behind the car. Everybody looks out the back window at me, starts up the car and drives off. <laughs> so the, you I, didn't hit the car? I, no one hit the car? The car wasn't torched? Yes. The car just drove off. Yeah. And and I'm, I'm shouting, my mate, uh, uh, he'd missed everything, but I remember he drove vividly, his back end going everywhere as so he tried to bring it under control to miss the car, my bike, me, and everything else as he came past. And uh, I remember trying to stand up and shouting to him to pick my bike up because I thought anybody coming around the bend is going to swerve to avoid the bike and run me over. So I, I managed to get up and get to the side of the road and I rolled my uh, trousers up. There was claret all coming down my leg. My knee was about three times the normal size. And a car comes past and a guy looks at my velo and he looks at me and he says, oh, is that a Velocet Venom or a Velocet Viper? I said, it's a Velocet Venom with blood streaming down my leg. He said, what's happening? I said, it's fallen off it. He said, oh, do you want to sell it? <laughs> We've had a story just like this before on the show. We've had a guy who was waiting outside the place his wife worked to, to collect her after work. He witnesses a motorcycle accident while he sat waiting in the car, wanders over and buys the wreckage. So we, we've already we've kind looking at me. We've I kind of already had the bloke. story. Yeah, he's <laughs> probably the same bloke. <laughs> That's it from Steve's Speed Shop. Don't forget to tell your friends about it. And if you uh, want to listen again, you can do that here at Fab Radio, or you can find the podcast in all kinds of places. See you next week.